Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In the last episode, we watched the de facto protagonists of our narrative breathe their final breaths, as the British regime of martial law in Ireland ensured that their lives would be the cost of rebellion during Britain's time of war. In this episode, we will continue to examine this response in its context, and pose an interesting, but no doubt also controversial question for you to think through. We are then reintroduced to an old favourite of this podcast and an underrated Irish patriot in his own right, and we conclude our analysis of the 1916 Rising by giving you guys a brief account of how Ireland went from sympathetic to the rebels to voting overwhelmingly to support Sinn Féin in the 1918 general election, an action that did provide the mandate for the true revolution which was to follow. This, history friends, is where our story ends. Sort of. So, if concluding our wonderful tale sounds good to you, I would like to say welcome to the miniseries. When Diplomacy Fails presents... 1916 a special centenary miniseries exploring the context, characters and controversies of the most significant act in Ireland's modern history, the 1916 Rising. You have all become heroes now. You never saw such a whole-scale conversion. Madge Callanan, writing to her friend James Ryan, then a prisoner in England following the events of the 1916 Rising, June 1916. Easter week and its sequel occupy the minds of us all. Elsewhere the story is told in part. The time has not yet come to write it in full. This, however, can be said from independent testimony that history does not record a cleaner fight than that fought by the volunteers. Another landmark has been fixed in the course of our history, 
another epoch has opened. Whatever the future has in store, no one who knows anything of the country can fail to see that the founts of our nationalism have been stirred to their depths, and that there has been a great searching of hearts and a great quickening of religious feeling. Extract from an article written in a July 1916 edition of the Catholic Bulletin. I have no part in politics, and no liking for politics, but there are moments when one cannot keep out of them. I have met nobody in close contact with the people who believes that conscription can be imposed without the killing of men and perhaps of women. There is in this country an extravagance of emotion which few Englishmen, accustomed to more objective habits of thought, can understand. I find in people here in Dublin a sense of strain and expectancy which makes even strangers speak something of their mind. I was ordering some coal yesterday and I said, I shall be in such and such a house for the next four months. The man at the counter, a stranger to me, muttered, Who in Ireland can say where he will be in four months? It seems a strangely wanton thing that England, for the sake of 50,000 soldiers, is prepared to hollow another trench between these two countries and fill it with blood. If that is done, England will suffer only in reputation, but Ireland will suffer in her character and soul, and all the work of my lifetime and that of my fellow workers, all our effort to clarify and sweeten the popular mind, will be destroyed, and Ireland, for another hundred years, will live in the sterility of her bitterness. William Butler Yeats, writing a long letter to Liberal statesman Lord Haldane, discussing the rampant conscription crisis and its likely effect on Ireland, Spring 1918. Last time we dwelt for a while on the anger and frustration expressed by some Irish MPs who simply could not get over the injustice and foolishness of the British reaction. After such coverage, and having read a number of passionate speeches by Irishmen roused by the British reaction, I admit it is difficult to get back down to earth and resume our coverage with the same objectivity as before. But I want to try to do so by contextualising the decisions made both by Maxwell to execute the rebels and by London to not stop him sooner. Perhaps the best way to do this is to ask the simple question, was the British treatment of the rebels of 1916 inexcusable? In a sense, it of course was. To us, the method of execution by firing squad seems almost medieval in comparison to the strides in technology and morality that human societies had made by the 20th century. Yet, on the other hand, just as we cannot pluck 1916 out of the sky, we cannot pluck the British reaction to it out of the sky either. Incidentally, both are easier to explain if we put them in the context of the First World War. Look at the facts. Britain had been in a state of modern, mechanised and costly war, for 18 months by the time the Rising occurred. It was used to acting in the name of the interests of the war effort, 
of delegating to the military's judgement. Such judgments had ensured that a great number of men had been executed for desertion on the Western Front, while the enemy had been positively demonised by anti-German propaganda in the years since the war broke out, with the rape of Belgium being used to depict the Germans as immoral, apish Huns, incapable of compassion and undeserving of mercy. This narrative was cultivated to make soldiering easier for the average Tommy, and to reduce the affinity he held with his common man across the trench, in the hopes that he would learn to hate his enemy, the German, and all he stood for. Irish historian Joe Lee has since pointed out that, in the midst of such an assassination of the German character and a demonising of her forces, it is significant that the Irish who invoked the German support during their rising were not treated more harshly because of their association. Joe Lee's colleague Charles Townsend disagrees with this analysis though, arguing himself that The suppression of the Irish rebellion must be judged to have been, by British standards, abnormally severe. It was an aberration generated by the pressure of the war. Only a much more rapid assertion of political authority would have mitigated its impact, but it is clear that those who might have imposed such limits did not see the need to do so. They were, after all, British, and no doubt represented in this the general opinion of the British public. As you can probably guess, historians diverge on whether exactly the British reaction was understandable, too harsh, a bit of both, or simply a product of the times. It was undoubtedly reactionary in that a policy of the British government towards the rebels seemed to have been formed only a few days after the rising had ended. Was there a sense of urgency on the part of the British to deal with the affront to its unity and security in Ireland, for fears that the ideas of the rising may spread or inspire more Irish to take up the cause? If such fears existed, then they were profoundly misplaced. As a whole, Ireland condemned the rising and those that participated in it, This was attested to by the claims of John Redmond when he had said that nine out of every ten of the population were on Britain's side. Even if condemnation was not forthcoming from every Irish individual and the bravery or valour of the rebels was emphasised in some circles, no impetus was ever felt by the Irish population to follow the rebels' example. This was all changed by the following days. In the space of a fortnight, the British managed to crystallise what the rebels had done, and through their own mismanagement and erroneous practices, they turned a smouldering city into the birthplace of a revolution. The actions of the British were, in my opinion, a reaction shaped by the world Britain existed within by the time of the 1916 Rising. It was shaped and ruled by violence. Should we look at the decision of the British to place Ireland under martial law only two days into the Rising as a symbol of its distrust of Irish people generally, or as a knee-jerk reaction influenced by a desire to enhance British securities during wartime? None of what Britain did during the Rising makes sense unless we consider the effects of the First World War upon British society. The very reaction given by Britain would have been vastly different had Britain been at peace. Just look at its behaviour in 1848 and 67, where discretion and 
carefulness was valued above all, and the aim was not to create martyrs out of any of those that had rebelled. Such wisdom and foresight, when dealing with a rebellion in 1916, was absent not because of Britain's inherent anti-Irishness. I feel it is far more convincing if we view the British delegation of authority to Maxwell and their willingness to let him order the 14 executions as a response demanded by the circumstances of war. For further evidence of this, look at the rebellions of 1798 and 1803, where Britain was at war with Napoleonic France at the time. In both of these cases, harsh action was used, and the rebels in question were hanged. I guess what I'm trying to say is, the issue of an Irish rebellion could be transformed from a regional annoyance to a threat to national security, depending on whether or not Britain was at war. If Britain was at war, and the Irish rebellion was seen as a threat to its national security, then Britain would always feel justified in arguing for the harshest sentencing possible. Any nation would if a group rose up against the centre during wartime. I know that it isn't that simple, but the point is that to London it effectively was. I have no doubt that Herbert Asquith was originally content to allow John Maxwell to go ahead with the executions until the grand total of 90 people originally given death sentences had been shot. The reason why he didn't do that was because of the notable backlash. Asquith and his cabinet, of course, should have been more in tune with what was going on in Ireland, and they should have acted sooner once the first three men had been executed on the 3rd of May. The fact that they didn't, of course, shows their ignorance, but it also reveals a striking inability to govern complex issues at home after directing the more simple military practices abroad. We can, of course, counter the clear brutalisation and deeply felt need of the British to stamp out native rebellions with the accusation that they simply should have known better and that they should have listened to the opinions of Irish MPs like John Dillon, John Redmond and Lawrence Ginnell, heck, even to Edward Carson, who urged the same caution as his political opposites. This is why I feel that, although I can appreciate what Britain was going through at the time, While I can understand that it feared for its safety, I cannot excuse its short-sightedness in failing to consider the consequences of its actions, arrogance in thinking it knew better than the Irish Council, and ignorance in not keeping abreast of developments or even the reality on the ground. How would putting Ireland under martial law do anything other than aggravate the situation? It would appear as though Britain was using a heavy hand in Ireland yet again no matter what way its administration tried to spin it. In a repetition of what had been done in Ireland before, Britain's wartime government forgot every lesson learned about Ireland in the past, about the need for tolerance, perception and patience. The burning question issued by numerous Irish MPs over the following days was, what made Ireland so special to invite such wrath? If Scotland, or Wales, or even Australia or Canada rose in a limited revolt, would Britain place its government under martial law on the second day? Irish MPs lambasted the policy choice not just because it was unjust, but because it flew in the face of guarantees both they and Britain had made to the Irish people in the past. 
Only Ireland, it seemed, was destined to receive the harshest treatment from Britain. If British statesmen could not appreciate how contradictory and hypocritical this made their regime in Ireland seem, if they could not plainly see how bad it made them look, how were Irish MPs going to go about persuading them? It was only once all that the MPs had warned of became apparent that Prime Minister Herbert Asquith admitted privately that the situation needed to change. Numerous messages were sent to Maxwell, each of a more urgent and worrying tone, while Maxwell looked upon them with a sense of confusion and even scorn. Was this not what he had been ordered to do? Was this not what his orders, what his job, entailed? Why now was London getting cold feet? Maxwell certainly never examined the works of the rebels, because if he had, he would have noted their romantic rhetoric, their seeking of death, their understanding of the power of martyrdom. Had he done his homework, had he read upon the rebels instead of blundering into Ireland, with all the subtlety of a bull in a china shop, he would have seen the value in keeping them alive. In a recent documentary aired on TV3, which I alluded to in episode 10 called Trial of the Century, this is exactly what does happen. John Maxwell is persuaded by a British official to keep Pierce and consequently all of the other rebels alive so that they won't be made into martyrs and so that the true folly and ignorance of the rebels' beliefs and aims could be exposed. During the course of that imaginary trial, Pierce is effectively grilled by John Redmond, who accused Pierce of ruining chances for home rule and scaring the Unionists when the goal Irish people had sought for so long was near at hand. Pierce, in this imaginary scenario, would claim that the North would never allow home rule, since it had gone up in arms before and would do so again, and that at least by acting, he and his comrades had shown their desire for true independence, in the form of a republic. I thoroughly enjoyed most of what the Trial of the Century brought forward, and I feel it usefully captures an issue which, through our examination of British actions, we may have lost sight of. The Easter Rising itself, by its very nature, was not something that the majority of Dublin or Ireland wanted. Physical force republicanism, and the creation of a republic in general, was not the majority's declared for goal. Home rule was. We can thus conclude, and many historians have since, that Pierce and his colleagues had no mandate to act, and that they did not act in Ireland's name. Within Trial of the Century, during imagined exchanges with the likes of Owen McNeill, Bulmer Hobson and Arthur Griffith, Pierce was told firsthand just how wrong his whole endeavour had been, yet he remained steadfastly convinced of his own destiny, of the righteousness of his cause, of the need to evangelise to others about the dream of an Irish Republic, and that Ireland would rouse to the Republic's banner if men proved themselves willing to die in the name of its creation with bravery, honour and pride. Objectively, then, I don't feel it would be much of a stretch to apply the charges of arrogance, ignorance and short-sightedness that I applied to Britain and its response to the Rising to the perpetrators of the Rising themselves. Even saying such a thing nowadays is controversial, and one may be accused of being deliberately inflammatory or even unpatriotic for saying so, but I don't care. 
When Pierce, Connolly, Clark, McDonough, McDermott, Kant and Plunkett acted, they did so firm in the knowledge that they were in the minority. They sought a Republican goal that nobody at the time really wanted, but which they professed as Ireland's true goal nonetheless. Arrogance. They marched, drilled and debated in secret groups the need to rise before the war ended, to strike at Britain during its time of peril, despite the fact that Ireland largely supported the war, and the reality was that many families depended upon it for their incomes and survival. Ignorance. They acted then, launching a revolt in a busy shopping and social district which they knew would result in massive civilian casualties. Children, women, babies, men coming or going to work, all were deemed expendable by the rebels, whose ideology stipulated that in the war for a republic, casualties were an unfortunate inevitability. We may at first shoot the wrong people, in the words of Pierce, written during one of his earlier essays. What he and his colleagues never accounted for was the possibility of not shooting anyone at all, of leaving violence on the battlefield and using politics to advance Ireland's cause rather than conflict. Because they chose conflict, the rebels chose to subject Ireland to a century of strife as they committed men and women to continuing on with a struggle for a republic which they knew full well that they could not militarily win. This was their short-sightedness. It was thus the work of two powers that created both the rising as we know it today and crystallised its significance in Irish history. Without Britain's terrible overreaction, Pierce's blood-sacrifice mantra would never have proved so effective and captivating, and the mostly willing sacrifices of the other rebels shot between the 3rd and the 12th of May, 1916, would never have inspired generations of Irish on all corners of this island to follow in their footsteps, only to eventually come to the same conclusion, known and appreciated to be true by every Irish politician since the Act of Union. This conclusion was the stark reality that Irish forces of any number stood no practical chance against the might of the world's greatest empire, so to save unnecessary bloodshed, it would be political negotiation, compromise and patience as the orders of the day. Such conclusions persuaded the likes of Michael Davitt, prominent Irish Republican Brotherhood man who we met in the earlier episodes, to lay down his IRB coat in favour of processes which could actually achieve genuine goals, not to mention save lives instead of jeopardise them. So significant and telling had David's transformation and achievements been, that by the time of his funeral in 1906, some 20,000 people visited his burial site, despite it being kept a secret. In the congregation for David's funeral sat another individual, the Chief Secretary for Ireland at that time, a Viscount James Bryce. Bryce's attendance demonstrated David's importance to Irish politics, as well as his significance in British political life. Even a former Fenian with a prison record like Michael Davitt had would have been a somewhat controversial funeral for a British official to attend. Yet, Bryce did attend, and he remains the only chief secretary to ever attend a funeral of a Fenian. 
former or otherwise. David's renouncing of violence and his conversion to constitutional politics would inspire the likes of Nelson Mandela and Mahatma Gandhi to follow suit, but when historians talk of Irish history and its inspiration, they normally note that Lenin drew inspiration from the Irish willingness to fight, or that India's first Prime Minister, Nehru, admired Pierce's militarist determination. Davitt's presence in Irish history is important, because it helps us to see that, despite his airbrushing from the narrative, that converts to peaceful agitation could happen, just as surely as radicalisation could. The Ireland that separatists, like Pierce imagined, would never be possible, unless through compromise and negotiation. Since Britain would never lose to its smaller, less developed Irish neighbour in a war, no matter the methods used in that war. If a war was hopeless, then why establish the foundations from which others could launch one in the first place? Did the rebels not anticipate that if their plans worked out, and Britain fell into their propaganda trap after all, Ireland would be drawn into fighting a doomed war for the sake of ends which Britain would never agree to? We'll dwell more on questions like that in our conclusion but for the moment I feel it would be worthwhile to roughly trace the development of what happened in Ireland from mid-May 1916, when the last martyr fell. With martial law still in place, the difficulty for those that supported the martyrs was how to express solidarity with them without drawing the ire of the current regime. People found ways around this by offering badges and adapting songs to the events of Easter week, because such expressions were harder to police. As the ruins of the GPO remained smouldering despite the sporadic May showers, people were able to Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. See for themselves what had become of the rebel stronghold now being billed as their last heroic stand against overwhelming odds. With the knowledge of how the British had treated the 15 men that had been executed, secure in their minds, to many the Rising became vindicated because of the British behaviour, or, to put it another way, the excessive harshness used by the British in executing those perceived responsible could be used to prove that the British regime in Ireland had been harsh all along and that the rebels had been right to rise in the first place. Incidentally, this line of reasoning still finds currency today in Ireland, but though it could be taken with a pinch of salt in terms of its validity and the fact that it completely views history backwards, it does demonstrate the kind of atmosphere that Dublin was enduring by this stage. The English pacifist and socialist Douglas Goldring, who we encountered a few episodes back, commented that when he arrived in Dublin at the end of May 1916, he was greeted with the following scenes. Picture postcards of the executed rebels were displayed in almost every shop window, and their faces were gazed upon with silent veneration by the passers-by. Up and down Sackville Street, urchins ran, selling broadsheets, purporting to contain the last inspiring speech of Thomas Macdonough. So far as one could tell, except among the shopkeepers who would not received compensation for their losses, and among the upper classes, all resentment against the Sinn Feiners had died away. The transforming public mood was indeed a remarkable spectacle to behold, but the question for the thoroughly confused Sinn Féin leadership was how to make use of such a charged atmosphere and increase in support for what the public believed the Sinn Féin party to stand for. For one, Sinn Féin had no real way to organise itself into the kind of Republican Party that an increasing number of people seemed to desire. How was Arthur Griffith, for example, meant to capitalise on the changes in public mood when his party had never been designed for such a purpose? Fortunately for Griffith, the presence of martial law aided his party's popularity, since martial law reinforced the idea that the British regime was an oppressive one. Fergal McGarry commented that Almost everything that followed in the weeks and months after the rising reflected poorly on the government, converting public sympathy for the rebels into something more tangible. The establishment of prisoner welfare organisations undoubtedly helped Sinn Féin's cause and provided an additional sense of injustice for those that still needed convincing while it provided more evidence of British wrongdoing for those that had already been converted. The mass arrests of a number of Irishmen and women and the shipment of some of them to prisons in England meant that London was easy to portray as the tyrannical regime that the rebels had died in order to end. The fact that a number of prisoners were returned home with little explanation or compensation added further fuel to the fire. But for those that remained locked up, organisations dedicated to bettering their lot were created, and these provided a convenient way for sympathisers to express their support, normally through monetary means, 
but also through political involvement and activism. It was surprisingly easy to translate aid for the imprisoned into activism on behalf of those that died or were awaiting sentencing. Pamphlets and easy-to-read memos, as well as an explosion in the Mosquito Press for small rebel publications, banned under the regime of martial law, officially, increased both the anger and passions of those that read them, and also increased the sense of purpose and involvement for those that went about distributing them. As McGarry concluded, By drawing large numbers of people into political activism, the prisoner issue provided an important and underrated bridge between the wreckage of the 1916 Rising and the reorganised Sinn Féin of 1917. The regime of martial law also helped to erode both the patience and sympathy of the average Dubliner with the British. Again, we return to the idea that the two actors were involved in making the Rising such a significant event. The rebels having acted over the course of a week, it was the British insistence of continuing to maintain such a provocative and restrictive regime on the average citizen over the space of the next year or so, which truly began to crystallise what had happened. Another trend was emerging within the sentiments of the populace, and this was one which the likes of John Redmond and John Dillon had feared the most. Support for the rebels soon became equated with resentment of the Irish Parliamentary Party. A prevalent rumour had it that Irish MPs had cheered when news of the executions were learned of. As we have seen, this couldn't have been further from the truth, with John Dillon especially drawing much British ire and controversy for his impassioned remarks in the House of Commons on the 11th of May. The reality was that once General Maxwell was appointed and Augustine Burrell resigned, John Redmond had little or no say in what went on in Ireland. This is demonstrated by his and his colleagues pleading for the new regime there to do the right thing and act with foresight in mind. They would hardly have felt the need to plead in the House of Commons if they'd had the power to influence anything in their homeland. Another thing we can take from the aftermath of the rising in the House of Commons is that the Irish Parliamentary Party was quite divided over how to view what had just taken place. Redmond, for one, viewed the rising initially as a strike against home rule, rather than against the British Empire, and he believed that the whole thing was orchestrated in its fullest, most effective form to drive the people away from moderate, nationalist politics. In a sense he was right, since one of the many professed goals of the martyred rebels was to awaken the Irish people from their slumber, and by awaken they meant pull them away from the culture of cooperation with the Westminster system and the British in general. By proxy, if nothing else, such a goal would mean the extinction of the Irish Parliamentary Party and all that it stood for. If we take the rebels' belief at face value, this suggests that the Irish people wanted a separatist republic. They just didn't know it or didn't believe that such a thing was realistically possible. Weighing in on this idea, Fergal McGarry provided the following judgement. Before the Easter Rising, many nationalists opposed violence for pragmatic rather than principled reasons, while the anglophobic rhetoric of some Irish party leaders had routinely eulogised the physical force martyrs of the past. 
Nationalists had supported Home Rule not because a measure of devolved power which kept Ireland within the United Kingdom fulfilled all of their aspirations, but because it seemed all that could realistically be achieved at the time. The Rising shattered both of these assumptions. This is where historians can diverge on the subject, because it involves talking about what Irish people wanted before 1916 for their country's future, and assessing such a complex question is of course difficult across a country-wide audience. It is an issue we will return to in the conclusion, because it is important for assessing the validity of the Rising itself, since it was launched in the name of the Irish people. An interesting fact about the Rising that is often forgotten is that it seemed to speed up politics. Prime Minister Herbert Asquith seemed decided on implementing Home Rule by the end of May, having been pushed over the edge by the Rising and the need to placate the Irish people before the situation there grew worse. In a typical example of the kind of attitudes that were prevailing at the time, it was considered better to try and force through Home Rule rather than simply end the regime of martial law, or release the mass of unfairly arrested citizens from their prison. It could thus be arguably stated, and many professed such a belief at the time according to at least one Dublin police chief, that one week of violence had done more to hurry along the Irish political process than so many declarations of loyalty, expressions of cooperation, or political careers over a series of decades ever had. On the 25th of May 1916, Herbert Asquith announced in the House of Commons that he had commissioned David Lloyd George to champion new talks between the Nationalists, led by John Redmond, and the Unionists, led by Edward Carson. Home rule seemed to be on the verge of completion once again. Yet, if John Redmond was hoping for the unintended consequences of the rising to be home rule, then he would have been disappointed. Over the summer of 1916, Lloyd George sought to get both men in the room together and hammer out a deal whereby compromise and a whereby compromise and a working solution that would enhance Ireland's zeal for the war would be the main results. As David Boyce in his article British Opinion Ireland and the War 1916 to 18 explains, there was a sense of urgency in the case of both Carson and Redmond. At first, all went well for Lloyd George's delicate mission, and he was able within a short time to secure a measure of agreement between himself, Carson on the one hand, and Redmond on the other. This is not surprising. Lloyd George possessed unique qualities as a negotiator, and he was dealing with men who were anxious to see his negotiations succeed. For Carson, the prime consideration was a settlement, so that the war effort would not be hampered by continuing unrest in Ireland. For Redmond, a settlement was essential, not only for the sake of the war but for the survival of his own party, for already his hold on the country had been weakened by the executions which followed the suppression of the rebellion. Yet the sense of goodwill that may have been created in the Buckingham Palace Conference of late July 1914, wherein both leaders of the two Irish pillars went away claiming that they understood the other better, notably did not make its presence felt here. The problem that invaded the talks was the question of partition, that dirty word of the Buckingham Palace Conference, which had suggested that dividing Ireland based on sentiment, race and religion, 
a state of affairs which would have carved northeast portions of Ireland away from a Dublin Parliament. On the surface, the major issue appears to be the question of whether partition would be a permanent thing, or just something that would endure until the end of the war, whereupon the settlement could be properly negotiated with less acting pressures. In actual fact, though, the talks would collapse because of Unionists' opposition to the partition plans, plans which prominent Southern Unionists became determined to wholeheartedly oppose, and who coincidentally also held seats in Cabinet and were in Lloyd George's confidence for the duration that the Commission deliberated. The fears of Southern Unionists is a historically underrated aspect of Irish history, but in this case it served to stonewall the proceedings between Carson, Redmond and Lloyd George, and led to an impasse just as the British government was entering a crisis period of their own, which would in time lead to Lloyd George taking over from Asquith as Prime Minister. The problem for John Redmond and other prominent Nationalist MPs was that they had given their tacit assent to partition during the proceedings, a fact that some historians put down to urgency during wartime, confusion, compromise or in the interests of kicking the can down the road. Certainly, Lloyd George and Edward Carson were very much attracted to the idea that partition would be properly negotiated in light of the Home Rule Bill once the war had ended, and the aim then going forward, until Southern Unionist MPs halted everything, was to arrange a sort of Home Rule Light scheme which would hopefully appease both Northern Unionists, fearful of a Dublin Parliament, and nationalists of all persuasions who desired increased freedoms after the events of the last few months. By offering such a solution, Redmond had attached himself to the worst deal imaginable for the time. It enabled those Republican sympathisers and the growing Sinn Féin party to claim that he had accepted partition while offering nothing in return, while it forced his party members to publicly defend something that they didn't even really want. Mercifully for Redmond, the arrangement never went ahead owing to Southern Unionist opposition. Interestingly for us though, and reflective of the way history has come to view Redmond as a figure, the only real thing that the 1916 Summer Commission is known for today is Redmond's capitulation to the partition of Ireland and proof that he could never be relied upon to achieve a true Irish independence. While Redmond reeled under the depression of the recent collapse of negotiations, Arthur Griffiths tried to wake up from his hangover and figure out what to do next. It had been a crazy past year for him and his older Sinn Féin colleagues, who were now suddenly associated with a radical Republican ideology that they had never before endorsed, at least not officially. Griffiths would have to admit that while the intrigues of the past year had brought radicals and extremists, they had also brought a sense of vibrancy and energy to his formerly small movement, which he really wanted to capitalise on. Thus, in October 1917, elements from both Sinn Féin's old guard and its new enthusiasts debated and spoke in a convention designed to determine where the group would go in the future. It nearly led to a split between the moderates and radicals, but Griffith seemed to placate the larger radical elements when he elected to resign the leadership in the name of a newer leader more compatible with Sinn Féin's newly emerging ethos. 
that leader who he handed the reins of this revolutionary group over to was none other than the former commander of Irish rebels at Mount Street Bridge, the convicted rebel and at one stage destined to die by firing squad before London called a halt to the executions, Mr. Eamon de Valera. We simply do not have space or time to examine the significance of Sinn Féin's change both before, up to and during its October 1917 convention, but one thing that we can emphasise is that the party was now utterly transformed from its pre-rising self. Once a reluctant inheritor and expression for those that sympathised with the rising, it now became a true political vehicle for that rising's ends. And that rising's ends, in de Valera's mind, was the establishment of an Irish Republic, which had first been proclaimed on the steps of the GPO, but had acquired a new sense of legitimacy over the months that had followed since. The establishment of this Republic was to be, in his words, a monument to the brave dead. He had a year to achieve this end, because the British general election of 1918, occurred upon the ending of the war in December of that year, and pitted the new force of Sinn Féinism against the old guard of the Irish Republican Party. For the first time, really, in its history, Irish nationalists had more than one party that they could choose to elect to Westminster. Over the course of that year, the Irish public had been roused by the willingness of Irish Republicans to die by hunger strike while their collective opposition and unification in the face of Britain's disastrous efforts to impose conscription in Ireland in April 1918 resulted in the explosion of Sinn Féin's fortunes and popularity. The manifestation of British short-sightedness with regards to Ireland had been forced to display itself yet again, thanks to the necessities imposed upon London by the intensification of the war as Germany, in spring 1918, launched its final desperate push during its spring offensive. Just as the war had sidelined home rule, had compelled Irish rebels to act, and had hurried later nationalist-unionist negotiations, now the war demonstrated to many an Irish citizen how Britain did not care for Ireland, and that Ireland's destiny lay instead in creating its own future, defined by the actors of 1916. On the other hand, although the true reason for abandoning plans for conscription in Ireland had more to do with American involvement in the war than Irish pressure, Sinn Féin was able to present the British change of mind in terms of a victory for its members, further increasing its popularity in the process. It shouldn't come as too much of a surprise to us then that the 1918 general election resulted in the virtual extinction of the Irish Parliamentary Party from Westminster, as the rebels of 1916 had always hoped it would. Sinn Féin secured 73 out of Ireland's designated 105 seats in Westminster, giving them a majority which republicanism had never before possessed. With the Liberals split and the Labour Party emerging as an unforeseen force, Eamon de Valera now represented the third largest party in the House of Commons, But how would he make use of such a victory? De Valera would not, it emerged, partake in the old political manoeuvring of old. Instead of taking seats in Westminster, De Valera and his Sinn Féin colleagues chose to abstain, 
to refrain from taking their seats as a form of political protest against the British establishment. Already, the aim was foremost in the Manifesto of Sinn Féin that it would seek to establish its own parliament in Dublin, just as the Irish Republic had proclaimed it would possess. What did John Redmond make of such a crippling development? Retrospectively, while it may seem natural that Sinn Féin would politically capitalise upon the events of the previous years, the Irish Parliamentary Party's elimination from the political scene would have come as a devastating shock to the man, had John Redmond not died in March 1918. The Irish political titan's death after years in the leadership position came at perhaps the worst time for its fortunes, since despite his unpopularity by that point, his experience was still vital if the Irish Parliamentary Party was to survive. He died of heart failure following a failed operation to remove an intestinal obstruction. His last words were reportedly said to the Jesuit priest at his deathbed, Father, I am a broken-hearted man. He had tried only a few weeks before his death to get an All-Ireland Home Rule solution through during the so-called Irish Convention that had sat since July 1917. Redmond seemed on the cusp of a breakthrough before divisions in the nationalist camp and the looming threat of conscription in Ireland forced him to retire from the debate. This had been the second time since the Rising that Redmond had participated in a commission over Ireland's future and though this iteration went better than summer 1916's version, the proceedings were hampered by the changing situation of the war. In desperation did British Prime Minister Lloyd George offer Ireland complete and total home rule across the length of Ireland in return for Irish people's agreement to be conscripted into British armies. In protest did Redmond's successor John Dillon and the rest of the Irish Parliamentary Party's MPs walk out of Westminster. Redmond would never live to see the ultimate disintegration of his party's fortunes and the realisation of his worst fears, but inklings that change was afoot were already present by the beginning of that year. Sinn Féin had spent much time organising itself since its previous convention of October 1917. It could count in excess of 1,500 clubs across the country, while sympathisers with its message and the popularity of the 1916 martyrs continued to strike an effective chord. Sinn Féin possessed what the Irish Parliamentary Party had not had since the days of Parnell, a youthful energy, a passionate ambition to change how Ireland was ruled, and a raft of eager would-be MPs determined to make their mark on Ireland's future. Many had been associated with the rising in some way, in a state of affairs that would set the tone for the future of Irish politics, the vast majority of Sinn Féin deputies were elected purely on their status as rebels or prisoners of the British during the 1916 Rising. When conscription was abandoned in early May, the British government made use of news of a German submarine supposedly landing on the west coast of Ireland to organise a general round-up of all Sinn Féin deputies, many of whom would remain in prison and win the share of their seats during the 1918 general election. While in practice the British may have believed they were acting to stifle Sinn Féin's influence or secure their own position, 
What they actually did was play right into the story that Sinn Féin continued to disseminate to its supporters. It was a kind of double victory for Sinn Féin, who could be credited both with successfully opposing conscription, as well as defying the British law once again. The 1918 general election contained the largest voter base ever seen in the United Kingdom, as all males over 21 and all women over 30 could vote, increasing from 25% in the last election to 75% of the actual entitlement of the populace to a say in how the country would be governed. Thus, when Sinn Féin won its 73 out of 105 seats, its members could argue that not only did the party have a clear vote of confidence from the Irish people, but that its message of fulfilling the promise of the 1916 Rising now had a mandate as well. Less perceptive Irish voters may not have realised it, but many Sinn Féin MPs who now elected to abstain from Westminster recognised that this mandate could be fulfilled only through the same means as those used by the rebels of the 1916 Rising through the means of violence against terrible odds. This time, though, its goal would not receive the limited support of a few thousand radicals. It would instead receive the backing of most of the Irish people and ignite the island of Ireland in a revolutionary violence that would lead in time to the modern Irish state. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.